0: Serious epidemiology. I am Haley Bannock from the University of Toronto, and I am joined by my friend and co host, Matt Fox from Boston University. Matt, how's it going?
1: It's going well, except that, as you know, I am the one who's supposed to be hosting this episode, but you are hosting it because I have what sounds to be like jackhammering going on in the background. So, my apologies in advance if I sound terrible.
0: Are they building something exciting?
1: I don't know what they're doing. A swimming pool? I'm hoping. I doubt it, but I'm hoping.
0: More likely HVAC or something less glamorous than that.
1: I think they're actually building a pharmacy.
0: Oh, that's convenient. So you can pick up your prescriptions on your way home?
1: I think it's a hospital pharmacy. I don't think it's like Mm. uh, open to the general public. Oh, less exciting. Yeah.
0: As you know, we are dedicating the entire second season of our podcast to the new edition of Modern Epidemiology, the fourth edition. Today, we are continuing our conversation about the chapter on selection bias and generalizability. It's chapter 14 for those of you who are following along. Today, we have an expert in issues related to selection bias, Dr. Chanel Howe from Brown University. Dr. Howe is an associate professor in the Department of Epidemiology within the Brown University School of Public Health. She serves as the director of the Epidemiology Doctoral Program at Brown, as well as is an associate editor for the American Journal of Epidemiology. Dr. Howe has an appointment with the Brown Center for Epidemiologic Research. She is also a member of the Providence Boston Center for AIDS Research. Welcome, Dr. Howe. How are you doing?
2: Good. Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, super excited to, to be here with you. I am a longtime fan of your papers on selection bias, and I'm really excited to have the chance to talk to
1: you.
2: Thank you for your kind words.
1: I am as well. And I also want to point out that we are, we are both part of the same CFARS. So that's important. Very important.
0: What is a FAR?
1: Center for AIDS Research.
0: Oh, so you, you share some substantive <laughs> interests as well as the selection bias interests.
1: Yes, absolutely. In fact, I think if I remember correctly, we first met at a, an HIV conference.
2: Probably, or maybe at the CIFAR gathering or something like that. So, yes, we definitely have substantive interests and methodological interests. We actually published uh, our first paper together, I guess, last year, right, Matt?
1: We did. Was-
0: Share with us what paper that
1: was. It was a paper on some simulation methods that we were working on that are designed to be simple simulations that you can use for teaching.
0: Awesome. Such an important tool for teaching. It's so much easier to understand some of these bias issues when you actually see some stimulated data. People should go check that out. All right, so before we uh, get into the real topic of today about selection bias, I want to ask Dr. Howe a few, you know, fun questions, the lighter stuff before we get into the hard stuff. So the first question that Matt and I often like to ask people is about whether there are any epi papers that you read or reread every year or you think others should read uh, every single year as, as a refresher.
2: So technically not a paper. I do find myself rereading every year portions of the Hernan and Robbins Causal Inference One of Textbook. I do this in preparation for the advanced epi methods class that I teach. And it's also a really nice refresher on the basics of causal inference. So I would recommend that others do that as well.
1: Okay, so this gets to a really important issue. If you are teaching a class and you recommend a textbook for that class, do you have to reread the textbook every year?
2: No. No, but I do think it can be beneficial to reread certain sections just to make sure you're fresh on the subject matter, essentially, because things that you're not thinking about on a regular basis, you can easily forget. So it's helpful for me to you know, reread certain sections.
1: Yeah, because I do not reread the text that I have, which is this text. Modern Epidemiology. I do not reread it every year. But Haley seemed to be implying that you do.
0: So if I have a, a chapter assigned for the class to read, yeah. I will read that in advance. Mostly because I I still live in fear that they're going to ask me a question that I have absolutely no idea about. And so I need to refresh myself in order to answer the questions that they ask. They're really hard questions sometimes, really detailed. And I'm, I really need to go back and make sure that I, I have all the details correct.
2: Fair enough. For the record, I don't go back and reread every year. Assigned paper. Essentially, I give the lecture, I have what's most important from the paper highlighted, and if there's something I can't answer on the spot, then I'll definitely go back and look at the paper. But there's way too many papers to reread everything. But I guess I shouldn't say that because I assigned the students to read that as well. But I just think it would not be fully manageable, you know, working on slides, updating other materials, plus rereading everything. I don't think I'm capable of doing all of that. But so I will sort of pick and choose when I need to go back and refresh.
1: I'm the same. I don't I do not reread it every year.
0: Yeah. I don't reread the papers. There's too many of them. And I've read yeah. I've read them before and I have the general idea for most of them at least. Yeah. I have a question about the Hernan and Robbins textbook, which I think is fabulous and I use it when I'm teaching as well. Do you like that it's PDF or would you rather a hard copy?
2: I like that it's PDF because I always have it with me then, right? So with modern epi, sometimes I'll need it, but it's at home (laughs) or I'll be at home and it's in the office versus with the causal inference textbooks. I always have it on my laptop so I can access it anywhere. Even sometimes I'll look at it on my phone to be completely truthful and I'll just find the appropriate section just to clear up some issue that I'm having. So I actually prefer the PDF and also the PDF is better for the environment. So we'll put that plug in there as well.
0: Yeah, That's true. I do miss being able to Highlight and write myself notes. I know you can do this you in PDF this. format, but I often want to reread my own notes each yeah. time, and so it's I find that a bit tricky because I'm always just downloading. I think my downloads folder probably has 55 yeah. versions of that textbook because <laughs> I always just re-download a new one. Yeah. But yeah, it's, it's a different model than I'm used to, rather than the hard copy of the the modern epi textbook.
1: Haley, do you print out all your students' papers and grade them, or do you not give? Papers. No,
0: I make comments via the word commenting function. I, I'm not that old school. You
1: could do the same thing in a PDF. I
0: know. And I, I just, you know, it's something I do think about whether I would prefer a Hernan and Robin's actual textbook. But either way, the content is there. All right. Second fun question we have for you. If you could give your younger self one piece of advice, what would it be?
2: Essentially, I would say sleep more, stress less, and have more fun.
1: Wait, wait. So would you give that same advice to your current self?
2: Probably as well. But I'm better at sleeping more. I still can get stressed. But I remember a conversation that I had with my then postdoc mentor, Steve Cole, when I was his postdoc, and I would regularly bust into his office and saying, it's all wrong. And he literally would say, you know, you need to get out of the panic zone. So I remember that conversation and tell myself that all the time as a de-stressor. I don't know if he knows that or remembers that, but I remember that conversation all the time. And I think that to myself, I'm feeling overwhelmed and stress levels are getting high. And I happens to everybody at all career stages so it's nice to have a reminder so I will even say that to myself and also yes definitely have fun
1: it's good advice I'm not sure I'm good at taking the advice but it's good advice which part
0: are you not good at sleep stress or fun Matt
1: I am not good at sleep and stress the sleep I think that's biologic I allocate enough time just can't sleep very well but the stress I am not good at de-stressing
0: that's fair. Uh, Chanel, I want to pick up on one thing you mentioned earlier, which is busting into an office or just being consumed <laughs> by worry that everything you've done is wrong. You know how many times I've had that feeling about a paper or red code and thinking this is the one I'm going to have to retract. This is the one I've, I've done something horribly wrong. Yeah. It's such a terrible feeling.
2: It is, And
0: I didn't know other people had that feeling as well. So in the one hand, it's reassuring. <laughs>
2: I think everybody has that feeling. We just don't talk about it a lot. And I actually try to talk about it as much as possible with my mentees so that they don't feel alone, essentially. Like it's human nature, especially given how much coding goes into a paper. There's so many places where you could make a mistake. And so just recognizing that everyone makes mistakes and panicking doesn't serve any purpose. Essentially, you just have to figure out, okay, what's the next step? What do we need to do? And, you know, try to remain calm during that process. <laughs> and again, that's something I've learned from Steve Cole because he, has always come across as very calm in every situation. And so I try to emulate that in my own work for better or worse. There's definitely room for improvement but it's nice to have a model or an example to to follow.
0: Absolutely. We should all emulate that very cool vibe that he has.
2: (laughs) Yeah, very cool.
0: (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, it was really nice chatting about that stuff and getting to know you a little more. We do have some questions about selection bias that I think you'll be able to help us with when we are reading this chapter. So Matt and I recorded an episode just talking kind of through the nitty gritty of the chapter. And we wanted to follow up with some questions, how you think about these things and how you teach others about these things. So the first, selection bias question we have for you today is related to the fact that selection bias is a broad concept that's taught in many different ways. So when you are teaching your students or introducing the concept uh, in a classroom, how do you define selection bias?
2: So great question. Typically, I define selection bias as bias that arises from how individuals are selected into or out of a given sample, such as a study population or analytic sample. More broadly, I usually just say selection bias is the bias that arises rises from selection.
0: That's fair. So mostly you're in that definition, you're focusing on the mechanism. So how people entered your study or whether they dropped out of your study or left your study over time. I find that sometimes it's confusing to synthesize that kind of definition with definitions that are based on DAGs or colliders or or things like that. So how do you see those two, not distinct definitions, but parallel definitions fitting together?
2: Yeah, I think they're complementary. So even though I start with that more broad definition of what selection bias is and it's more focused on mechanism, I do think it's helpful to use DAGs to distinguish between different sources of bias and how to minimize bias. So, for instance, distinguishing between bias due to confounding versus bias due to selection, I find that the DAG is very helpful in making that distinction.
1: So can I just ask if the way in which you describe selection bias is, and it's the way I describe it too, which is the bias that comes about from the way that people are selected into or out of our study. How do you reconcile that with the DAG-based definition in which we're saying, largely speaking, I know there are exceptions, but largely speaking, that selection bias is when you condition on, stratify, or or restrict on a collection. How do you square those definitions if the selection bias in that case can be a decision that the analyst makes? So it's not the way that a physical person is selected into or out of a study, so much it's an analytic decision that we make. Obviously, it can be selection forces and the collider is just selection, but it could also be just a variable that is a collider that we condition on in our analysis. So how do you think about that?
2: Yeah, so to me, the DAG can show the mechanism. So it can show the source of the selection bias. So it can show... the exposure going into the collider and some common cause of the collider and the outcome. So it depicts the mechanism by which it's happening and shows the best approach to minimize it, whether that's regression adjustment or inverse probability weighting. What was the second part of your question? Well, I just wonder
1: how we sort of wear the idea that the definition that we typically use is one based on selection, you know, how people are selected into or out of a study versus the DAG-based definition, which covers all that, but could also, I think, include analytic decisions.
2: So the definition that I've prov- provided, I think it said into and out of a sample. And that sample could be the study population or it could be the analytic sample. And so the analytic sample could be, you know, you've restricted because you have missing data issues and you need to exclude people. But I also view it as, let's say you adjust for a variable. So let's say you commit in bias or something like that. Then essentially you're conditioning on that collider and then people are being selected into strata of that collider. Then you're getting an estimate within those strata that assuming no effect modification is getting pooled. essentially, to give you one estimate. So within those strata represent analytic samples or mini analytic samples, essentially. So I don't see it being contradictory. I see it being still complementary. And again, it's still showing all the mechanisms.
1: Yeah. And I don't know how this is something that I missed, but Haley pointed this out to me. And now you're pointing out to me and several other people have that to me, it always seemed like something different, but clearly it's the same. It's just selection in terms of how we're selecting people into our analytic groups that we're comparing. So to me, that's really interesting. And different from the way I conceptualized it.
2: And just to be clear, I don't think you're alone in that thinking, Matt. I know (laughs) for a fact there are other people who agree with you, and I've had ongoing discussions about this, and I'll leave it at that, because there may be more to come on this issue.
1: Well, I will also say I'm actually quite convinced by you and and Haley and the others that I've spoken to on so I'm somewhere in between, I think.
0: Yeah, it's different dimensions of selection, right? Whether you're selecting physical people or you're selecting people into an analytic data set, it's it's the same underlying idea in my head, at least.
1: Yeah, although to me, I'm convinced on the part where you're selecting people into an analytic data set. I was less clear on the idea that you are selecting people into a group within your data set that you're going to pool information back together being selection bias, but I'm becoming more and more convinced.
0: Yeah, these are the nuances that make selection bias really challenging to understand sometimes. I agree. We can maybe get into this a little bit later, but the Hernan paper, the Structural Approach to Selection Bias paper, one of my favorite papers. And, and one of the papers I say, I like to reread every year, the nuance about whether it's always collider bias, or it always produces a bias when it's under the null, which is what the, the paper was talking about versus the follow up paper, which talks about selection bias in the absence of colliders. That's a nuance, I think that for sure was mostly lost on me when I when I first read the paper, and is an important follow up to the the paper, I think that people need to understand, but a, a minor nuance in the broader scheme of collider
2: bias. Yes, I I agree.
0: So something you mentioned a little bit earlier is about how DAGs are, are useful for figuring out whether the mechanism is selection bias versus confounding. So in the textbook, on page 319, it says, biases resulting from differential selection into the exposure groups at the start of follow-up is often called selection bias, but in our terminology, they are examples of confounding. Can you help us parse apart this sentence and, and give us maybe a little bit of intuition about the difference between selection bias? and confounding?
2: So how I like to distinguish it is that I consider confounding bias is bias due to the presence of common causes, while selection bias is due to conditioning on a collider or descendant of a collider or conditioning on an effect measure modifier. So those definitions alone, I think, draw a clear delineation between what I consider to be confounding bias versus selection bias. I do agree that this sentence that you quoted from modern epidemiology can be a little bit confusing and may make them sound very similar. And so that's why I like the structural definitions, because to me, it makes it very clear what the distinction is.
1: Yeah. Well, so what you said was the structural definitions give us very clear distinctions. Common causes would be confounding, conditioning on a common effect, or a modifier. Is that what you said? Be selection bias? Yes. Can you elaborate on that last part? Because that's new to me. So conditioning on an effect modifier can create selection bias?
2: Yes. There's a paper that I published with Haidong Liu, Steve Cole, and Daniel Westrick and E last year. The title of the paper, so that everyone knows it, it's called Toward a Clear Definition of Selection Bias When Estimating Causal Effects. And so in that paper, we draw a distinction in the type of selection bias. And it basically builds on that commentary that Miguel wrote in 2017 that Haley mentioned earlier, that was a follow-up to the 2004 selection bias paper. And so essentially in that paper, which I encourage every person to read, we have two types of selection bias, type one and type two. So type one selection bias, which was the focus of that 2004 paper by Miguel is selection bias that happens because you've conditioned on a collider or a descendant of a collider. And that's the most well-known one. And after I read that paper as a student and then continue to read it, I always thought that selection bias and collider stratification bias were synonyms. And that's not the case. In a situation where the exposure causes the outcome and there is a common cause of selection and the outcome, and that common cause of selection and the outcome is an effect modifier, which then in turn makes the selection Node, essentially a surrogate effect modifier. In that situation, you end up with type two selection bias.
1: Okay, I did read that paper, and it's a fantastic paper. The thing I love about that paper is it comes with simulation code that you can run that demonstrates a lot of these things, but I just somehow didn't internalize the effect modifier part of it, which I think is, is really important.
2: Yes, because the value that you get, or the true value, let's say, in that selected sample, that restricted sample, let's say for some causal effect, is going to be different than and the true value for the causal effect in the target population because the selection node is a modifier so let's say that common cause was age. And so the age distribution in your selected sample will differ from the age distribution in the target population because age determines selection. And so because age is a modifier, the true value in your restricted sample is going to be different than in your target population. And that's the, it's a selection bias because it happens because of selection and it's a bias because the values differ.
1: So does that get to a distinction between internal and external validity in that case?
2: Yeah. So, So if this restricted sample is the study population and the unrestricted sample or the sample before selection is your target population, that can be considered what's been called a generalizability bias and external validity issue because what you're getting from your study population doesn't extrapolate to the target population that includes the people that were selected into your restricted sample plus those who weren't.
1: Okay, this is mind broadening for me. This is not the way I am used to thinking about it, but I see the value in the way you presented it.
2: Yeah. And so that paper, the Lou paper from 2022 in epidemiology, provides definitions of internal and external validity and then links it to type one and type two selection bias, which I think is really, really helpful in terms of people being able to identify the type of bias and what approaches are appropriate to minimize it or, you know, get from the selected sample to the target population.
1: So, can I ask a slightly off topic? It's only slightly in the sense that we were not here to talk about internal and external validity, but while we're on, on the subject, do you teach a lot about the external validity part of it or the generalizability or transportability, whatever frameworks you think about? Because I, that to me, that's been on my list of things to add to my syllabus for years. I originally didn't include it because I kind of felt like, you know, the old school thinking of internal validity is what matters. External validity is only interesting after you've established internal validity. And you know, we have a hard enough time doing that. But more and more, I'm starting to think we're doing a disservice if we don't teach that. So is something you focus on?
2: Sort of. So I don't use the labeling because honestly, I think it's quite complicated. It is. And it's funny because before this podcast, I went back and looked at that paper and it's a great paper, but it's conceptually very challenging. And part of, I think the challenging part is that, you know, there's a lot of different definitions like internal versus external validity and referent population and study sample versus analytic sample. So it's very comprehensive, but it can, especially if you're starting to read it for the first time, it can be really overwhelming. So this year was the first year in the fall was the first time that I taught using that paper because it only came out last year. And so I tried to minimize the number of labels as possible, and really just focus on the structure, whether it was a collider or not, or a collider was involved or not, in terms of the selection bias. And I still called it selection bias. But when I was referring to the type two selection bias, that's when I started talking more about the generalizability, external validity issue. But for me, it's always been under the umbrella of selection bias. This paper just makes more nuanced distinctions that I think once you have a good foundation, you can really capitalize and benefit from. But if you're just seeing this all for the first time, time, I can definitely see how it could be overwhelming. And so minimizing the number of different terms or terminology, I think can be really helpful. So I personally, when I teach, don't really draw big distinctions, let's say, between generalizability and transportability, because to me, they all fall under the um, umbrella of external validity. where in my mind, I view the generalizability issue is, you know, are the results, let's say, from your study population, can they be generalized back to the target population that you initially were interested in making inference about and that you sampled your study population for? from, but let's say there's some other target population that you didn't sample from and may not overlap at all, let's say in terms of the distribution of effect modifiers, then to me that can be conceived of more of an issue of transportability. But I don't go into all of those nuances when I'm first teaching it because again, that can be really overwhelming and you want to provide the good foundation and keep building and building and sort of going back to the original question about is there a paper that one might want to reread, I think that 2022 paper is definitely a paper that I continue you to go back to you know reread even though I'm a co-author cuz I'm like oh what did we say about this situation and so I would add that to the list of papers to for people to to read maybe annually <laughs> and to and to cite
1: <laughs> oh obviously it has to be obviously. cited
0: so uh, all of these terms are very confusing you know I still get them confused routinely but when I think about selection bias I typically put it under the umbrella of a threat to internal validity but I think based on what we're talking about and and the paper you're mentioning, it's time that we think more broadly about selection bias as both a threat to internal and external validity. Is that correct?
2: Yes, that's absolutely correct. And so we make the case, based on our definitions of internal and external validity, that the type 1 selection bias, where, again, the bias in- introduced because condition on a collider or descendant of a collider impacts or is in a threat to internal validity, and then this issue of type 2 selection bias, where, again, you're conditioning on an effect modifier, which is a selection node, can actually be a threat to both internal and external validity. And so we try to make the case at the end of that paper to say that we really should be focusing on both if we want to be able to generalize our findings to other study populations, right? So make sure that it's internally valid. And then once it's internally valid, then extrapolate it to the relevant target population.
1: So uh, the part of the reason I wanted to ask you about the generalizability question and how you teach it is because you and I are in the same field and we're also in the same general part of the country. And we often have students who have gone through your program and then come and work with us. And they rave about your course.
2: Oh, they do. They Yay! do. They
1: absolutely do. And so I wondered, because it's something that I have thought about a lot when I'm teaching, is whether we make too big a deal out of the difference between confounding and selection bias. So obviously it's, it's critical that students understand the difference both mechanistically, like how does confounding and how does selection bias occur, and structurally, thinking about it in terms of common causes and conditioning on common effects. But at the end of the day, it, it seems like like it all comes down to populations in which you lack exchangeability, and you have to do something about it one way or the other if you want to be able to draw valid inferences. And my sense is that economists, generally speaking, don't focus too much on the difference that they generally just call it all just bias and it doesn't really matter whether it comes from the way that people self-select into groups or are selected into groups in terms of treatments they are prescribed or whether it's a study-specific bias. Do you buy into that at all or do you think it's critical that we teach them separately?
2: I personally think it's helpful to teach them separately because different approaches may be needed to address them. For instance, randomizing the exposure can, in theory, eliminate confounding bias. However, even if randomization of the exposure works to eliminate confounding bias, selection bias arising from exclusions that occur after the start of your study, such as selection bias student loss follow up, can still occur.
1: Yeah, and I definitely buy that. It just, when I start thinking about the more advanced students, start really getting into counterfactuals. It seems like it, at that stage, what we end up is with two populations that lack exchangeability, and I've got to figure out how to get back to exchangeable populations. Your point about randomization obviously is valid. And so at the design phase, we do actually have to distinguish between them. But once I end up with the people who are in my study, it seems like whether it's bias created by confounding or selection bias, I've, I've got to find something in my DAG that will allow me to block the unblocked backdoor paths or I'm not going to be able to get a valid estimate.
2: True, but even at the analytic stage, the approach is different. For some situations, you can just do regression adjustment and be done with it. But for many others, you can't. So for instance, if you're accounting for selection bias using inverse probability weighting, the exposure weights are different than the selection weights. So even analytically, they're different.
1: Oh, I see. Good point. Yep. Okay. So clearly we do have to keep them separate. There goes my grand unified theory of bias.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, the the issue about exchangeability, I, I hate to throw another term into the mix because we, as we've talked about, there's already too many terms for confusing concepts. But when I'm teaching about causal inference, I just did a few lectures on it. And this concept of exchangeability, we often use it to describe differences in the exposed and the exposed group and, and this lack of exchangeability, maybe due to confounding. Do you ever use the, the term exchangeability when you're referring to selection bias, lack of exchangeability in the selection context.
2: Absolutely. And I think I used that language in a 2011 paper that I published.
0: It's probably where I got it from. <laughs> but
2: essentially, so in terms of confounding, there's a lack of exchangeability between the exposed and unexposed. But in terms of selection, there's also a lack of exchangeability between the exposed and unexposed, but it arises because of selection. It's because of a lack of exchangeability between who's selected and who's not selected that then creeps into and causes the lack of exchangeability between the exposed and the unexposed. But they all fall under a lack of exchangeability
1: do you would you say you identify with a bias and that bias is selection bias because I identify with measurement error more than the others.
2: Yeah, I definitely identify most with selection bias. I've been thinking about selection bias since my dissertation. And I sort of joke with my students that even when I think I know everything, some other nuance comes up that sort of is like pulling a rug out from under me. And I have to think, wait, does everything I believe is, is that incorrect? And though I have to like reconsider everything. So maybe once I've figured out selection bias entirely, like entirely, then I can Move on, but I don't feel like I'm quite there yet. And it's also really pertinent to a lot of the work that I do concerning health disparities, especially racial disparities. So I think that's why it just occupies such a big space in my brain versus the other biases, even though I obviously think confounding is really important and measurement error is really important. In some ways, selection bias has defined my career, to be completely yes, honest. No, so
1: That is, I, when I think of selection bias, I think of you. And that's why yeah, I agree. we wanted to talk with you. Thank you.
0: Chanel, can you tell us a little bit about your work uh, with health disparities and how it relates to selection bias issues. I think that it's nice to hear some applied examples of of how this stuff plays out in the real world beyond, you know, just the, the textbook examples.
2: So I personally think health disparities work is particularly vulnerable to selection bias because a lot of these exposures occur before the start of the study, like well before the start of the study. So if you're thinking about racial disparities, people are essentially assigned a race essentially at birth or even conception, unless we're enrolling People at birth, usually we, you know, people in adulthood. There's a lot of time people have to survive to get to add your study. And that can be a source of selection bias because race can predict selection into your study and there's all sorts of common causes. And so that can hold you for a lot of other health disparities because, you know, it's focused a lot on these like early life exposures or groupings, et cetera. So that's why I think the health disparities work is particularly vulnerable to selection bias.
0: I agree with that. And I think that it's important for people to understand how these biases play out and how how sneaky they can be. I always call selection bias a very sneaky bias that pops up all the time and you just overlook it much of the time unless you're really explicitly looking for it, especially when you're talking about health disparities or some of my aging research as well. You have to survive a really long time to make it to a cohort of older adults. Similar types of of problems may arise.
1: So then can I ask the question then about do you believe that you can have selection bias at baseline in a prospective cohort study? Because it seems to me this is probably a settled question Question, but when I was a doctoral student, I remember debates about this within our department. And to be fair, this was also, I was a doctoral student at the beginning of DAGs coming into EPI, but it just seemed to me that was something that people really talked about a lot. Where do you fall on that?
2: You definitely can have selection bias in a prospective observational cohort study because who agrees to be in your study usually isn't random. So you end up potentially, if you're asking about exposures that happen prior to study entry, which is common, those exposures can influence whether somebody someone agrees to participate. And then again, there's these common causes. So there's that selection bias or that collider bias that's essentially happening in that example. But you can also have selection bias or type 2 selection bias in the context of an RCT. So like in an RCT, you won't have that type 1 selection bias that's conditioned on a collider because the exposure isn't assigned until after the study population has been assembled. But you can have the type 2 selection bias where, let's say, that the treatment has an effect on the outcome, and then there's common causes of who agreed to be in your RCT versus who didn't, so common causes of agreeing to participate in the RCT and the outcome, then you can have that type 2 selection bias if those common causes are effect modifiers. And we think about that all the time, like, are your results from an RCT generalizable to other populations? And that's the type 2 selection bias.
1: And so in terms of the type 1 selection bias, where you could have, you know, at baseline in a prospective court study, you could have selection bias. Do you have a way of explaining that to people when you're in a situation where you can't draw out the DAG, just sort of explaining it mechanistically? Because it seems to me where people get confused on that one is if the outcome hasn't happened yet, and if selection bias requires conditioning on a common effect where I'm going to get an association with selection to both the exposure and the outcome, and the outcome hasn't happened yet, how does that selection bias get created?
2: So let's say that age, at invitation to participate in the study, is that common cause of agreeing to participate, and then age impacts death. Let's say death is your outcome. So that common cause exists, and then... You have some exposure that influences whether someone participates in your study. So to me, that seems a plausible way for that bias to happen from the start of your study.
1: Okay, so let me just describe that. So age is a common cause of the outcome and of selection. And the exposure is affecting selection, Mm -hmm. so that when you condition on selection, you get an association between the exposure and age, and age is causing the outcome, so you get that bias. Mm -hmm. Yep. And that is where I think DAGs clarify something that people used to debate, and really, the answer is actually pretty straightforward. But without DAGs, it's very hard to come up with the right answer.
2: Yeah. It's funny because there's a sort of a running joke I have with some of my friends and colleagues where they'll ask me a question. Like, oh, do you think biases are happening? And I said, I can't answer it unless you draw me the DAG. And they're just saying, like Chanel, like you should be able to answer these questions without DAGs. And I'm like, no, please draw the DAG, and then I will help you because I can't. I mean, I have a hard time thinking through it you know, especially if it's really complex. And so things that I didn't think were selection bias, I drew the DAG and realized that it was.
1: Yeah, yeah. Do you say that your common response is draw me the DAG? I find that I ask students to draw me their DAG whenever they're asking me for advice on things, And the answer I always get from them is, no, 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 you don't understand. My DAG is really complicated. (laughs) And I say to them, everybody's DAG is really complicated because the world is really complicated.
2: Yeah, I mean, simplify it as much as you can and then and proceed essentially
0: yeah and always use a a paper and a pencil it has to be a pencil (laughs) don't try to draw your tags with pen it just doesn't work
2: or you can use a whiteboard. Yeah, that's true. I use that whiteboard a lot in my office.
1: Okay, so while we're on the subject, what do you use for software then for drawing DAGs? Because the only software that I know of that is purpose-built for that easily is Daggety, which is great, but it visually it doesn't work as well. So what do you all use for that?
2: I actually use SmartDraw.
1: SmartDraw.
2: Yeah, so that was that's another Steve Cole recommendation. And the DAGs are really nice. I mean, I've gotten so many compliments on my DAGs because they just look really pretty. But you have to do it manually annually. I've actually never used Zaggerty, but I guess you enter in the relationships and then it just generates it for you. But with SmartDraw, you literally have to draw every line. But essentially, a lot of my dads are really similar because, you know, I answer similar research questions. So I just like adopt them and modify. And if you look at my papers where I am the first author, or let's say a mentee is the first author, then the, the diagram is based on, on SmartDraw.
1: Interesting. I'm looking it up now. And I was trying to do it while I was talking to you. And I accidentally typed in Smart Gag. Nothing came up.
2: <laughs> yeah, smart draw. Smart draw. One word. Got it. Yeah. Got it.
0: I use old school PowerPoint, PowerPoint slides with text boxes and, and arrows and stuff like that. It's a complete pain, but I've never heard of SmartDraw. So, I do so the that's...
1: same, Alien. first of all, they're not easy. Yeah. The arrows, every time you try to move something, get screwed up and they don't look nice. Well, I'm sure they can look nice. Mine don't look nice.
0: Yeah, no, I, I have not successfully made them look very nice. Actually, I, I don't like how Daggety looks. Yeah. And so I didn't know there was another option.
1: I love Daggety as software. I just can't then turn them into nice publication questions quality but I mean I've seen
2: people publish with them yeah but I prefer again I just prefer smart draw so you know take a look at my papers if you like the DAX in terms of what they look like aesthetically then I would encourage you to purchase the program I don't think it's that expensive
1: looks like it's nine ninety five a month
2: okay yeah
0: makes sense you have to pay for most worthwhile expensive software Okay, I have a question coming back to that RCT issue that Matt was raising about selection bias in RCTs. So my question is this, and I think I know the answer, but I'm not 100% sure, which is does randomization address any aspects of selection bias at baseline in a randomized controlled trial?
2: Great question. So I don't think that randomizing the exposure would address type 2 selection bias that occurred because study participation was not random and a common cause of study participation Participation in the outcome was also an effect measure modifier of the relationship between the exposure and outcome. However, randomizing the exposure can avoid type 1 selection bias that would have occurred due to the presence of a common cause of the exposure and a collider, like in the case of M bias. But I think it's important to note that randomizing the exposure alone would not address the type 1 selection bias that occurred because randomization happened before your cohort was assembled, and the randomized exposure determined participation into your study. Though this latter situation is probably unlikely by design in an RCT, I raise this issue to point out that randomizing the exposure after the cohort has been assembled is what avoids this latter type 1 selection bias scenario, not just the mere act of randomization. I believe that this point is made in the Hernan et al. 2004 selection bias paper and is also relevant to the content included in a great paper published by Miguel and Collies in 2016 in the Journal of Clinical Epidemiology. The 2016 paper specifically talks about all the pitfalls that can arise because of when the exposure is captured or assigned in relation to the start of study follow-up. So reading that paper clarifies a lot of these issues. Yeah,
0: you know, I think I recall the paper as well and talking about how defining time zero in different ways can produce bias.
2: Yes, absolutely.
0: That's kind of a topic about time zero that we haven't mentioned. I don't think it's discussed in this chapter, but issues relating to time zero and the timing of exposure are certainly crucial when understanding selection bias.
2: Yes, and anytime you have a long gap between exposure assessment and assembling the study population, that's when you can get in trouble. And when I had that realization is what helped me to see that health disparity studies are particularly subject to that because those exposures are typically defined early in life but then you're in the study later in life essentially again unless you're doing some study from conception which is usually not the case for most of us
0: so is it exposure assessment as you said or exposure assignment you know so i guess there's a slight difference i'm thinking yeah. about you know my own obesity or bmi related work so yeah. it would be not the assessment the assessment can happen later on
2: Yeah, probably not using phrasing it well, but I'm not using the word assignment to be inclusive of these observational studies where there is no intervention. Yes,
0: I'm thinking, right.
2: That's why I use the assessment essentially, or maybe exposure window is better. Time window, yeah. Maybe, yeah, that's probably a better phrase to use.
1: But isn't this a large part of observational epidemiology that we study things where the exposure has occurred prior to this study and often a pretty good amount of time I just I find that whenever I mention this to people people are defiant in that this is a problem because everybody does this which is of course not a good reason to
2: me it's clearest in a time to event analysis, essentially. And I think that's where I first saw it with the issue of left truncation, where people aren't surviving long enough to enter your study. And that's a source of selection bias, because you had the exposure, let's say 10 years ago, but you didn't make it those 10 years to be in the study. And by make it, I mean, you didn't make it event free. I don't mean just necessarily being alive, but you didn't make it event free. So those types of big gaps are problematic in every observational study. But to me, it was clearest when I was training in the context of doing time to event analyses, because because you have to figure out, do you include that time that you didn't see before the study and the answer is no.
1: So is time zero covered somewhere in, in the book? Must be, right?
0: I don't think it's in this chapter.
1: I don't think it's in this chapter, but I guess I should ask, You know, would you classify that as a selection bias? You know, Poorly defined zero time or immortal person time or all of those person time issues, do those fall in your view under selection bias?
2: Yes, because in terms of immortal person time, you can't have let's say the outcome of interest, otherwise you wouldn't be in the study if you did. And that exclusion is the selection bias, right? So all Mm -hmm. those people who Mm -hmm. had the event before they made it to your study are excluded. So when you get your study population, it's a selected sample. So it's a selection bias issue.
0: I think there's different dimensions of immortal person time. Sammy Suisa, and the first author is actually Linda Levesque, has a great paper describing how some immortal time bias is related to selection bias, and some is also related to misclassification of person time in your exposed and unexposed group. So I think there's dimensions of both. But I did Look in the index, and time zero is not listed.
1: All right, well, now there needs to be a fifth edition. Maybe it's covered but called something else. I would I bet it's in there.
0: Yeah, but the, the terminology times zero is not, not every word is in the index,
1: but you know. It's so I'm starting to think that epidemiology is actually kind of hard. <laughs> that's, that's my that's my. It take is hard.
2: Here. It's really challenging. It is.
0: Yeah. Especially related to selection bias. I find that it's so, there's so many new, as I was saying, so many nuances, so many cases that you have to think through. It's not just, you know, one and done.
2: Yeah. I mean, this is why I would, again, bust into Steve Cole's office because I would be like, we did it wrong because there's this other thing I never thought about that just came up because there's always something else, right? And obviously you can't do everything, but I have a tendency to overthink and think about millions of biases. And sometimes you just have to just say, okay, well, I'm putting this in my limitations section and, and moving forward.
0: I think that's a that's a fair strategy for that most of us in the real world, in practice, we end up having to do sometimes is, you know, making mention of these potential issues, but you can't solve every issue in, in one single paper. So I appreciate you giving us that advice because sometimes that's how how it has to happen
2: absolutely all right well
0: this was a terrific conversation I really learned a lot chatting with you so so thank you so much for joining us
2: thank you for having me
0: For those of you who are not members of the Society for Epidemiologic Research, I strongly recommend that you consider becoming a member. Membership gets you a discounted fee for the annual meeting, which is coming up in June in Portland. It also gets you access to the SER library, which has some great learning materials, seminars, and activities. You can find out more at epiresearch.org. We also want to plug our sister podcast from the American Journal of Epidemiology, Casual Inference. If you like this podcast, we think you'll like that one as well. Finally, as a reminder that the views expressed on this podcast of those of the hosts and guests alone and do not represent the views of the society for epidemiologic research we appreciate you listening and hope you look out for our next episode coming out next month bye
1: Bye.